Hey, this is Louisiana Sister Squad podcast, where we bring you real information to enhance your truther lifestyle. I'm Katie. And I'm Tammy. Welcome Welcome to to the the show. show. On this episode, we're diving deep into the dark history of science. We're going to be reviewing the real story about primatology, the development of AIDS, and where we are now. This is more of a presentation style podcast, so Nick will have the floor for the majority of the podcast. And keep an eye out for part two, where we cover questions and answers. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hi, uh, my name is Nick, and I appreciate being here today. I'm a multidisciplinary investigator, and that's a mouthful that means that uh, as opposed to a scientific specialist who will commonly guard themselves from making comments outside of their specialized domain of research, I will swim right underneath the lane lines into any lane that I want and explore and examine data. So what I'm going to be doing today is sharing um, a core presentation which traces scientific uh, and policy evidence from the 1950s to the emergence of HIV in two different distinct populations, uh, Central Africa and uh, a group of three different vaccine volunteers in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, all in a sequence from Uh, the winter of 1978 to the summer of 1981. So the the basic format of what we're doing today is called medical anthropology. So you don't have to be a scientist. And we're going to be uh, looking uh, at a slideshow here, but really talking to uh, the research, the evidence, the historical events that make up this sequence. In the Cold War era, following World War II, there was a mix of both uh, sort of an uh, inertia in the federal war machine, which included uh, the first institutional biowarfare partner, a private pharmaceutical partner, and that was Merck of Merck Sharp and Dome. Uh, They had a lot of momentum because of the activities and the research and the funding that had occurred during the war, and that that continued into the 1950s. Also in the 1950s, there was uh, an emphasis placed on an emerging public health problem of polio. Uh, As a result of problems with the polio vaccine and a whole new thrust of scientific research, we began using primates monkeys of different types, uh, both to test human biological or vaccine products, but also to use their bodies as the source material. Think of putting a seed in a pot of soil. Well, the monkey body was the soil and the seed would be whatever virus pathogen uh, the scientists were researching. uh, And that unfortunately opened the gateway to a whole era of science called medical primatology. Uh, And that means using primates, their blood, uh, their bodies, living animals, as well as the virology, the specific pathogens that are endemic or natural to all of these animals uh, in the course of experimental medical scientific research, including for biological warfare, as well as for things like vaccines. So this was the hotbed that was occurring uh, in the halls of science at this point in time. And because of a major problem with a polio vaccine in the mid-50s, it kicked off a race between two scientific camps. Uh, One of them was Dr. Hilary Kaprowski. And he, uh, you can see in literature, uh, went to great lengths to move experimental products forward faster than was generally acceptable or even legal or ethical in the scientific standards. So his race led him to Africa. At this same point in time, there was emerging a new vein of research in another kind of disease, and that was hepatitis B. Now, hep B 
is a very complex story. There are there are many areas of study that we could get into here, uh, but suffice it to say that Hep B and where we pick up with that virus in this story about AIDS uh, is that there were two key scientists that began researching hepatitis B experimental therapies, trying to protect the residents. And these were uh, children that were wards of the state at an institution called Willowbrook State School in New York. They began this work right in the middle of that polio vaccine race, and their hepatitis work also intersected with the use of chimpanzees. At this time, also, a, uh, a very important uh, example of scientific, I would say, malfeasance. They would say etiology. But I would say that this is a, a very difficult aspect of human medical science that we all need to come to terms with. I'm pretty sure everybody knows what pneumonia is. We all understand in a general sense, oh, pneumonia. Grandma died of pneumonia. Well, pneumonia isn't a pathogen. Pneumonia can be caused through several different mechanisms, some of those being um, a pathogen. There's one specific pathogen that is in the news right now, and it's called respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. The important lesson about RSV, if you're watching um, encouragement of creating new RSV vaccines or using the new mRNA platform for an RMA, uh, for an RNA vaccine, uh, is that this isn't just a pathogen that came out of nowhere or was endemic to people. It was originally called chimpanzee coriza agent, CCA. And it was very quickly renamed because scientists and the institutions around them did not want the public asking why is a human pneumonia pathogen that's causing deaths in people increasingly more and more since this point in time forward, why is that named chimpanzee? How, how in the world would a human get a chimpanzee virus? So this is one of those uh, shell game where uh, a, a animal virus that through the use of animals in human science and medicine becomes endemic in people, uh, then gets renamed so as to uh, remove concern, to basically clout, you know, cloak it or change it. I told you about Dr. Hilary Kaprowski, and he was one of the uh, two scientists along with Dr. Sabine who were on the race to find a new replacement polio vaccine. Well, Kaprowski's work brought him right into uh, the Belgian Congo. He was sponsored by the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, and he had at his side a leading, uh, uh, we'll say, vaccinologist, he would say virologist, uh, Dr. Stanley Plotkin, and others from a European uh, Institute who joined together in Stanleyville. Now, Stanleyville Laboratories was in the middle of the Belgian Congo and a major center for research at the time. It was still a Belgian protectorate or a colonial state uh, during this era. This is the late 50s. The important piece about all of these names and all of these, all of these people is that when they went to experiment on a polio vaccine, they used chimpanzees as the substrate. That word substrate, remember, means the soil, the basic building block upon which you're going to build a vaccine product. And that particular piece of their science fell into great contention decades later at a meeting in London at the Royal Society. So uh, we're looking at a slide here in the deck that uh, brings in a link to a documentary. And we're going to take a moment here, and I'm going to play a brief uh, clip from this link. Uh, this documentary is out on the Internet Archive. It's free, and it's a very, very important body of evidence because the documentary team heard the arguments from the scientists of this time when they denied using chimpanzees in 2001 at that meeting. Uh, then they went and interviewed locals in Stanleyville 
and uh, people who had worked with the animals, people who had worked in the laboratory and remembered quite clearly, quite lucidly what they had done. They all confirmed that it was chimpanzees, one kind of animal. And the reason that that is so important and why I, you keep hearing me talk about the chimpanzee pantroglodyte is because that is the natural hearth of SIVCPZ. That's what became HIV type one. So we're going to, um, I'm going to stop sharing for just a moment and then we're going to reshare and start sharing the audio on this. You're going to hear a little bit of narration and then a brief clip of uh, one of the scientists at the NIH, a pathologist named Cecil Fox. And he's dis he's discussing a little bit, sort of characterizing the nature of the science of this era. Okay, here we go with a brief clip. This is from the documentary. It's called The Origins of AIDS. Uh, and this was made by uh, a joint team of Canadian and French uh, documentarians. Um, and they did an amazing job. They got really important evidence. I would encourage everyone to watch this. Let's take a listen. Return to political quiet after the recent disturbances. Leopoldville engages in an all-out fight against infantile paralysis, crowding every clinic with mothers and their children, the latter to receive orally administered shots of a new vaccine against the scourge of childhood. It is a live virus preparation developed in the United States by Philadelphia's Dr. Hilary Koprovsky. And it differs from our famed Salk vaccine in that it does away with injections. And it must taste good if the children's receptivity to it is a criterion. Hilary Koprovsky went to the Congo and took people who had been abused, mistreated, uh, and had been the victims of if you want to put it that way, of colonial expansion for nearly a hundred years and use them. The ethics of that I don't think occurred to anyone at the time. The opportunity was there, it was legal, it was allowed by the Belgian government. They went in and did their job and that was it. No big deal. Okay, so that was um, a very important scientist who explored and examined uh, what occurred at this point in history. Those little, those little babies that you saw getting the Kaprowski OPV, many of them presented cancer very quickly. And uh, there's a bit of a, a scientific rift, a hypothesis sort of splits here. The investigative journalist that wrote The River, that's uh, Ed Hooper. He's a British investigative journalist who lived in Africa and wrote an amazing uh, volume about AIDS in Africa and his hypothesis that that campaign was the birthplace of AIDS uh, is to me, uh, I, I just, I dissent from that. I think it's very, very important. Uh, I think it's a historical watermark of of what occurred in virology and the use of primates to produce a human biological product. But what occurred after this was not AIDS in Africa. Otherwise, the entire history of African public health would have been rewritten. Uh, what occurred was a wave of cancers in infants, children, teens, people that were completely healthy a few months prior, then had sudden aggressive oral jawbone and nasopharyngeal cancers. So uh, the viruses that they were able to isolate from those cancers found their way over to Western scientists. There were biopsies. And at the same time, there was the emergence of the early projects from the special virus cancer program, which were quite fascinated uh, with, with this emergence of cancer in a population following a vaccination. Now, that didn't make the mainstream press. We didn't learn about this in public health. We didn't see this epidemic of cancer in Africa in the early 60s, but the bioweaponeers around the world and virologists, microbiologists, all took notice. And it set us on a path um, to really you know, go down this unfortunate road into medical primatology. Again, in parallel with all of these new and disturbing primate pathogens, uh, comes a red alert 
an alarm from two doctors and Dr. Eddie and Dr. Stewart identified uh, a very dangerous new pathogen that they found in some of these candidate and experimental and production vaccines off the shelf. And it was the 40th cataloged in this particular category, and they called it SV40, which means simian virus 40. Uh, and they were quite concerned because when they took and tested this substance that they isolated from the vaccines and put it into test animals, they immediately presented very aggressive malignant cancers and died very quickly. Other doctors, other colleagues external to Dr. Eddy and Dr. Stewart's offices uh, remove, uh, did the same thing. They removed particles uh, from a vaccine. They put them into test animals and the animals died. So over the course of about two or three years, these two whistleblowers doing the job they were hired to do to protect public health were causing an increasing amount of stress for both the regulatory agencies. We're talking about the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, and more importantly, for their pharmaceutical public-private partners. And when I say public-private partners, it's because what happens inside the proprietary walls of a pharmaceutical company is proprietary. The public has no compulsory right to know, even if that product is going to be used in a public health campaign. That's one of the real difficult situations where um, a federal health agency has to have the, that relationship but there's no compulsion for ethics and transparency in their work, particularly if they find out that there's been a contaminant that's already been released into millions and millions of people, which is what happened with SV40. They had a big meeting about this issue at Cold Spring Harbor Labs. This is a very important piece of history. Cold Spring Harbor Labs is now essentially the U.S. center, and then by means of its Rockefeller network, uh, sort of the global center for preprints. So people that are writing peer-review scientific papers go through a preprint process, and that's where it gets reviewed, rebutted, or reinforced by their peers. And they own the preprint channel, essentially. If you go and look on any of the preprint websites, you'll see the logo for Cold Spring Harbor Labs. This is also the birthplace of the American Eugenics Society. The very first building erected on this campus was a two-story brick building for the American Eugenics Society. We're not going to go into a whole, there's a whole master's class on eugenics in America and its effects in the history of our country and today. Um, but it played into what happens at that little campus. It seems to me, my opinion is, that it's kind of an offshore site. It's sort of a demilitarized zone. So this is the, uh, the campus we were discussing about uh, the history of American eugenics. At this point in history, a, a great number of important parties sort of stepped away from Maryland, from the NIH headquarters or the defense headquarters of the Pentagon or the White House, and they gathered together at this offsite campus on Long Island. And they discussed the risk of SV40 in current commercial uh, vaccine products, meaning products that had already gone into millions of arms. Uh, they allowed an, a scientist from Merck, remember that, that first biowarfare pharmaceutical partner that we discussed earlier, Dr. Maurice Hilleman and his, uh, and his partner, Dr. Sweet, uh, put a paper forward called SV40, the vacuolating virus. And in it, they very quickly dismissed any concerns about the kinds of evidence that uh, Dr. Stewart and Dr. Eddy saw in their animal experiments. They said, no, we, we can control SV40 with sterilization and we don't see it as any kind of a problem. Uh, so we're just going to uh, move forward. We're gonna continue with this production model, which meant that the pharmaceutical partners didn't have to spend more money to reinvent the cell culture vaccine product models that they had developed in the last few years. They were able to continue forward. That went from the, from the mid-50s 
until the, I'd say, mid to late 70s, as far as a primary uh, substrate uh, material. We're talking about the material upon which uh, biologicals or vaccine products are grown. They're grown just like a yeast culture, uh, just like any number of things where you have a parent seed pathogen or or culture, and then you've got a material that you magnify it or allow it to proliferate on. So that's what we're talking about. This opened the door to years and years and years of SV40 and other primate pathogens contaminating public health around the world because it was accepted as a, a basic bench line of public health and for pharmaceutical production methods. This is its own story. And why this is so difficult for me is that SV40 is uh, a paradox. You can go into the scientific literature and find scientists who try to say that it doesn't, it doesn't cause cancer and it's not involved in cancer. And then you can go and find about 10 times as many papers of scientists describing using SV40 to cause cancer in their test tubes, in their what's called a system, a cell system, or in living animals, and in hybridizing it, turning it, you know, putting it through the Brady Bunch machine and making all kinds of new little chimeras, um, variants of SV40 mixed with other pathogens very dangerous stuff. And even as late as materials that I found in the World Health Organization vaccine laboratory safety manual, uh, were discussing the difficulty of controlling SV40. They say it's oncogenic and it can't be controlled in primary primate cell culture, which is that soil, that substrate that has been used to make so many products over the years. So this bifurcates at this point in time from a discussion, not just about the methods of science and medicine and what was allowed into public health versus what was swept under the rug, but it branches out into potentially some very difficult uh, potential realities in disease trends and human mortality trends related to autoimmune disorders cancer, and of course, HIV. So we're continuing on through the slideshow and uh, we're moving forward now a couple of years to a new set of biodefense projects. Now we're calling this a set of biodefense projects because of who was contracted to hire scientists to do the work. Uh, the one in question is Lytton Bionetics. And Litton Bionetics is uh, a subsidy of uh, Litton Industries. They have a, a number of different branches, different names. Uh, and they were one of the top bio warfare contractors that worked with the defense and intelligence communities and also acted as some kind of a, a, a mediator, a connective tissue between those worlds of high security top secret biodefense uh, objectives and projects and the academic and pharmaceutical universities that they had become very dependent on during World War II to help solve problems and move products forward. So you're beginning to hear us describe this continuum from federal defense entities all the way into major universities and over-the-counter medical brands that we all know like Merck. So that was that was a, a turning point. This is 1962. And we're going to be looking now at another example from the items that are linked into this timeline. This is an example of a scientific report. So think of an annual report card, and it's written in non-scientific language for the most part. So people like you and I can pick it up and pretty easily identify specifically what they mean, what they're intending to do with the work, and we can probably all understand why it might be a concern. Right now, I'm sharing out that document, and it's called, uh, the title of this annual progress report is called Investigations of Viral Carcinogenesis in Primates. And that means looking for pathogens 
viruses, whether that be RNA viruses or DNA viruses in primates that are involved in creating cancer. That's what carcinogenesis means. So if you didn't know, cancer is extremely complex. There's no single formula that triggers cancer in human beings. We do have a very wonderful, robust, natural ability to rebalance our bodies. It's called homeostasis. Uh, and that includes some specific mechanisms to fight against cancer and keep our cells from doing that, that cancer thing. Um, this scientific thrust here in 1962 is, is being led by several scientists who are going to go and do two things. They're going to look for pathogens that cause cancer that come from primates. That's what SIV is. SIV CPZ, SIV or simian immunodeficiency virus from the chimpanzee pentroglodyte is the genetic parent, the progenitor to what most of us understand AIDS or HIV AIDS to be, HIV type 1. This means that there is no other intermediary host or retrovirus or, you know, any step in the evolutionary chain that has been established in any way between those two points. That's really, really critical that the chimpanzee SIV somehow became something that infected millions and millions of people eventually, but began by seeming to present disease in people that had received a vaccine, an experimental vaccine made with chimpanzees. Now, another piece that's very, very important historically uh, in this document to note at the top is that one of the scientists here in 1962 is a young Dr. Robert Gallo. Now, Dr. Gallo in 1983 was named as the discoverer of HTLV-3, his name for what eventually became known as HIV-1. Then there was a contentious fight behind the scenes about that patent claim. But I think there's a very important thread of history here, that a scientist who is working for Lytton Bionetics, a biodefense research firm, under an NIH contract in 1962, begins looking for pathogens in primates that cause leukemias and cancers like SIV and HIV, and then eventually is named as the discoverer of HIV. I think that's a very important historical footnote. As we watch the papers and these annual progress reports, like that sample that we just looked at, we, we are observing scientists beginning to describe in more and more detail that they are finding a larger and larger family of pathogens specific to primates that seem to be involved in disease of one type or another. Many of them, including things like solid tumors, leukemias, sarcomas, and lymphomas. We talked about those children who were subject to Kaprowski's oral polio vaccine experiment across Central Africa. Well, by 1964, there are a great number of papers written after scientists in the West, so the UK and the US, received biopsies and extracts and cell samples and blood samples from these patients and began noting and characterizing uh, isolatable particles, filterable particles that they feel are involved in the onset of these diseases in unusual numbers in demographics that normally did not ever present cancers like this. We talked about briefly the special virus cancer program. Well, those early uh, projects like the Gallo project that we just drilled into for a moment uh, came together under a new umbrella starting in 1964. It was originally called the special virus leukemia program. And it eventually was renamed a couple of times and it became the Special Virus Cancer Program. It ran for 17 years. It ran officially from 1964 to 1977. We'll kind of talk about the overall timeline as we get closer to the end of the discussion here about what became of the SVCP. Uh, but in it, there is a slide that I really would encourage you if you get this, uh, this timeline 
to click on the progress report. It's the final progress report from the program as they discuss how all of this illegal biowarfare at the time called recombinant DNA technology, now we call gain of function, went from being sort of a temporary overarching program under the SVCP into integrated everyday departments at the NIH. So I think the implication is things that we we played semantic games with about how we defined, is it cancer research or is it biowarfare research? That division is called dual use, where there's a storefront purpose for something, and then there may be an illegal or unethical purpose for it that can also be derived from the work. All kinds of things can fall under dual purpose. Um, but I think that's what occurred with the SBCP when it finally plugged into the NIH and became part of their bread and butter operations. As we continue through the 60s, uh, we see a number of primate facilities opened up across the U.S. That was also part of Robert Gallo's charter for that uh, paper that we looked at. They had um, a whole network of primate breeding facilities and housing facilities, and they provided live animals and what are called derivatives, things like kidney culture, blood cells of certain types, or anything else from the animal that was needed for a scientific experiment. Um, they, they gave animals all kinds of exotic diseases, and unfortunately, in many cases, suffered uncontrollable epidemics when they would do an experiment like that, and then they would lose entire populations of animals. They were also refining the capability of combining multiple types of viruses to be the most effective, the most expedient at triggering cancer. So that's another important uh, sort of uh, a, a milestone we need to take note of. We're talking about the transmissibility of cancer. If this is news to you, I want you to think about the HPV vaccine, the Gardasil vaccine. That's an example of how a virus a specific type of HPV. There are about four types of HPV that are involved in uh, in cancer can be very, very dangerous, particularly if you uh, acquire all of them. Or there are helper viruses like Epstein-Barr virus mixed into your biology. <clears throat> That's why we say cancer is complex and there are a lot of different formulas and ways that it can happen in the body. The second hearth or natural source for HIV type 2, which only seems to emerge in uh, West Africa, is uh, the animal that we're looking at on this slide. It's the sooty mangabe. We're at a milestone now here at the end of the of the 60s. And we're gonna we're gonna set the the table really quickly about what was happening across Congress, the Senate, um, public news and debate, what was happening? Well, the Cold War had turned into the Vietnam War. Uh, the publicity around veterans coming home and discussing what they had been exposed to, like Agent Orange and many other situations and scenarios, was making its way into the mainstream press. So Henry Kissinger, uh, President, uh, President Nixon's uh, newly appointed National Security Advisor, his NSA, leaned very heavily towards uh, chemical and particularly biological warfare. They were interested in things that would be less obvious, but could be just as uh, sinister uh, as, as you exposed someone, a target, to a biological agent that would then eventually present disease that looked like they had gotten cancer or pneumonia or something like that. It looked like the the natural emergence of a serious or chronic illness. That was what they were very excited about. And this is a continuum that includes the United States Army Research and Technology Group, all of the intelligence progeny, and mainly the CIA. The CIA and the U.S. Army had joint operations at Fort Detrick at this time. Here is the only slide that I'll read you out of this presentation, and this is a historical quote. The conversation is occurring between Dr. Donald MacArthur of the U.S. Army R&T Group 
and this special appropriations subcommittee. Here we go. Here's the quote. He's offering them a new capability. Dr. MacArthur says, quote, Within the next five to ten years, it would probably be possible to make a new infective microorganism which could differ in certain important aspects from any known disease-causing organisms. Most important of these is that it might be refractory to the immunological and therapeutic processes upon which we depend to maintain our relative freedom from infectious disease, end quote. So in the face of a lot of public scrutiny and a, a promise by President Nixon in November of 1969 that the U.S. would never, no longer pursue any kind of offensive biological or chemical warfare research, we would only maintain our defensive projects. And then he and Henry Kissinger ran right over and scribbled out with their black sharpies, defensive, defensive. They just wrote defensive on everything. <clears throat> this is this is absolutely verifiable externally by looking at the year-over-year -year progress reports from SVCP. The scientists have wandered well away from any kind of a thinly-veiled premise of fighting cancer, and they are just looking for new kinds of pathogens, bringing pathogens from animals into people, hybridizing them and making new, dangerous, highly infectious chimera that didn't exist in nature before. And those projects don't get packed up when Nixon makes that declaration. Their reports continue. There are multi-year projects that continued unabated, and the very detailed subject matter of what they were doing in the lab, which is categorically illegal, according to international conventions, um, it, it continued. They just kept working on the stuff, even though there was a facade that the United States was going to play by international rules. We were cleaning up our act. And I think if we fast forward to today and some of the things that we're coming to understand about um, illegal offshore bioweapons research by the NIH through universities and third-party non-governmental organizations, uh, all kinds of, of hand-in-glove operations, we can see that we never got this, this dissent from international law under control. We never reigned in either the people that enabled it and funded it or the people that were paid to do the science. It's only gotten more and more dangerous. Another piece of this puzzle that's very, very unfortunate is uh, the use of something called anti-lymphocytic serum. ALS is um, a special laboratory substance that's produced when you're doing a number of different activities. You might be transplanting um, an organ or grafting skin from one test subject to another. And in the receiving test subject, you want to suppress their natural immunity. So as we see in the quite horrifying papers from that era of medical primatology, so intermixing primates into human medicine, we see a number of uh, experiments where a primate tooth or skin or blood or an organ is experimentally transplanted into another test subject. And you use this ALS substance from the source animal. So if you are going to implant, uh, say, chimpanzee blood, do a transfusion experiment, you might also try to help suppress the immune response of the receiving test subject, whether that be an animal or a person, and yes, I found papers from this era where there were direct unfiltered transfusion experiments between chimpanzees and human patients. Nothing in between them but a plastic tube. So if we if we hear objections from science that this could never HIV could never have come from a lab HIV just came because of uh, you know because Africans were eating primates and somebody cut their hand and they got monkey blood in their body well we have two now very very clear and distinct eras of science that can speak to uh, a counter argument one 
that mass exposure to SIV from the chimpanzee, as we saw in Stanleyville and around Central Africa, did not result in the emergence of AIDS. It gave an alarming number of people cancers, but it did not turn into an immune suppressive retrovirus that was sexually transmittable from person to person or the entire, you know, 20 years prior to the emergence of AIDS in Africa would have been different. The other piece is that we can see in the papers very clearly that there were gross missteps in scientific safety, in standards of practice and precautionary. Uh, I mean, they, they threw caution to the wind in some of these cases and continued building the publicly endorsed and scheduled CDC vaccines using primate primary cell culture. That was the substance of choice all during this time. So we were, we were seeing both in, in these direct experiments and in public health, the emergence of more and more cancers. A cancer industry was spinning up behind this. That's another major branch of this research that really deserves its own examination. The hepatitis B vaccines were tested in uh, both human beings and in chimpanzees. Quite commonly, a chimpanzee could be used as a viral mixer. That means that you put some hepatitis B virus into a living monkey uh, and you let the chimpanzee magnify the viral count. It's called the titer. And then when the animal has a high concentration of virus, the animal is killed and they say they filter the virus out. In that kind of uh, an application of using a living chimpanzee as a viral mixer for a human vaccine product, there are so many papers that can be written about the, uh, the risks to public health, the risks to the individual, the lack of bioethics. Um, there's, there's, there were any number of situations where this was occurring in public health, uh, and the public just doesn't understand. They see the emergence of all of these autoimmune conditions and cancer as just, mm, just well, it's it's global warming. Oh, it's toxicity in the environment. Oh, you know, my grandpa had cancer. They don't understand the basic premise that just like HIV, many, many, many components of human cancer can be transmitted, either sexually or through a needle stick. Now, in 1972, a, a young Geraldo Rivera managed to get keys to the Willowbrook State School to one of the wings. And he walked in unannounced with a camera crew and broke the story of the squalor and, and human tragedy of what had been happening to the residents there. These were children who had been signed over to the state. And then the parents could also sign an additional waiver, get a little bit of money, uh, and their child could be included in these hepatitis experiments. A great number of them died. There were a great number of unmarked child graves at the Willowbrook facility. And the facility has been sold and a great amount of the campus has been paved over from its original layout. So unfortunately, going back and doing real forensics of how many kids died, who were they, and did any of them have HIV sequences in their blood or their marrow um, is probably a lost cause. That's, I don't think that's going to happen. This is, we're looking at a slide of the flow chart. This is the basic scientific explanation that was published in the 1972 uh, annual progress report from the SVCP. And they describe their very detailed and thorough process for gathering all different kinds of human and animal cancer types, isolating particles from those cancers, and then moving those viruses or retroviruses through this uh, experimental process of moving them between animals, challenging them. It's called attenuation or basically damaging or insulting the, the ability of the pathogen to survive. And then essentially making it wash up on the shores of a new kind of animal cell or a living animal or a person. And in this way, they could evoke new mutations in the pathogen and they could move it across the species barrier. This is described again and again in the materials of the SVCP. Uh, and the scientists published in all of the major journals. They, they, they did their summary reports in these SVCP uh, progress reports, 
but they also independently published on all kinds of the granular details of what they were doing in the lab. In the early 70s, uh, homosexuality was delisted as a mental disorder. And this was the beginning of, I would say, a major part of what we understand the culture war is today about LGBT people. Um, you know, this didn't really have anything to do specifically with transsexuality. It was just that homosexuals were no longer, could no longer be put away or subject as a dehumanized category um, to medical experiments or institutionalization. This uh, is an important piece in the timeline. And at the same time, in, in parallel, for those of you that know about the 60s and the 70s, the sexual revolution, the gay community was just becoming a thing. And they were starting to have a pride parade. And a great number of the pride parades were over-sexualized. There was a, a quite a, you know, quite a, a, a in-your-face and lurid display of things that should have been kept in private. And that was a part of this. This is part of the, you know, the defiance of a community that had been getting beat up by the cops. Now they've got the ability to book a parade down Main Street in San Francisco or Greenwich Village. Uh, and unfortunately, they took it upon themselves to really sort of shove most of the private content into the public eye. And that began the love affair between the mainstream press and gay pride parades, where they seemed to take it upon themselves to find the most unfortunate example of that community and make that person the front page cover, make them the leading picture. There's a whole lot that factors in here. Uh, what's important about this change in the categorization of uh, homosexuality being delisted is that unfortunately in the literature, they're still being referred to as a subnormal population. And that would make them subject to certain medical experiments and investigations. We talked about Dr. Gallo starting way back in 62 with that bio warfare project where he was looking for cancer-causing pathogens from primates and also was part of the team building out the U.S. Primate Center Network. Here in the 70s, we see that he has now isolated a primate leukemia virus. He's confirmed that it's, it's, it's a primate type and it's found in a human leukemia patient. Well, he takes that isolate and does many more papers over the next few years as that leukemia-causing virus from a monkey that was taken from a person takes on a life of its own. If any of you have read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks or saw that documentary, this is a, a similar scenario where cells isolated from a patient who died of that disease uh, became an entire career and spawned cell cultures and projects and explorations into this very aggressive cancer-causing, leukemia-causing primate virus. So uh, there are many parallels to the work that we can see in Dr. Gallo's work. He certainly is not um, a lone culprit in the story of how HIV became SIV. We've talked about subnormal categories of people. This continued on as virologists were describing and encouraging each other to perform experiments on populations like hemophiliacs and homosexual men. I told you that this was a, unfortunately a very dark and global enterprise. All of the work that occurred in the U.S. was occurring in parallel through a network of the Rockefeller Foundation of the World Health Organization. What I mean by that is the Rockefeller Foundation propped up the WHO and has helped keep the WHO uh, what it is all of these years. And unfortunately, we see two vaccine campaigns in Africa, which appear to intersect with the emergence of what they originally called slim disease or HIV. Uh, that would have been a set of campaigns performed by USAID, AID, which unfortunately has CIA connections. And this was a hepatitis vaccine campaign that happened in parallel to those three cohorts in the U.S., also, there was a smallpox campaign conducted directly by the World Health Organization, which also appears to correlate and was followed by the presentation of SLIM. 
in the populations that received those products. So those are the, those are the two major channels that it appears HIV was introduced into the global population through the U.S. study. And we can watch and look at exactly who those people were and what their health outcomes were. And then these African vaccine campaigns that resulted in the emergence of SLIM. The CIA didn't want its biological warfare uh, materials to be examined in a congressional investigation. So in the middle of requests for that data, uh, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb and then the current director CIA, Richard Helms, uh, instructed a great deal of materials about their biological warfare work to be destroyed. We know that this was a, an attempt at erasure because they erred in their attempt. They were incomplete. What they didn't account for and couldn't control are all of the finance memos, all of the what are called thin ops uh, artifacts that were already out in the defense and intelligence apparatus, descri you know, describing um, sub-project number 302 and a bill for $12,000 to pay subject you know, subject experiment, uh, people who experimented or, or took part in a, in a project. That's one single example of some of the things that I've seen in declassified CIA data. So what they didn't account for was the ability for people to reconcile and compare the things that were already established in other sources with the materials that they attempted to destroy and sort of disappear from history. What they also couldn't disappear was all of that scientific publication, the annual progress reports, which don't really name the CIA often at all, just a couple of instances. Um, but we know from all of that financial evidence that the CIA and the U.S. Army R&T group were in business together at Fort Detrick. They did it for years and years and years. So, and there were, there were a number of, of companies, a number of pharmacology teams, a number of universities that are mixed into that story. So this is an important part of, as we look today at COVID-19 and we see the history of uh, patents and individual scientific milestones that seem to be a precise and unique, uh, we'll say molecular fingerprint for the COVID-19 pathogen. We see that that stretches back at least 20 years, if not more. Um, and this is a very important case study to compare. What did the CIA do and what did defense and intelligence agencies do to try and cover up their biological warfare work in this era? And how does it compare to the kinds of machinations and, and uh, backpedaling and data erasure, like DNA sequences being removed out of the NCBI database, things like that. How does it relate to what we're seeing unfold today in the COVID era? Um, that's, that's one of the things I hope that if anybody puts their head down into this learning material, that they really consider, um, how does this, is, is this a rinse and repeat? Is this, is this basically a playbook page number 22 that they decided to run again? I've now come to a slide for those of you that are listening that uh, involves a, a key player, both then and now, and his influence on world health, world population, and global geopolitics began in the 1950s. And he is today a key senior advisor to Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. If you want to learn one thing about Dr. Henry Kissinger, I would encourage you to go, as we're going to do here in just a second, and read his security memorandum from the mid-70s, where he discusses and promotes actively reducing the population. HIV appears to be a test run. It was targeted at particular populations that were categorized scientifically and certainly in the ivory halls um, as subnormal, gay men and women, blacks, people of color, people that have handicaps. Uh, there's, there's a huge list. That's where the philosophy of the eugenics era that we started with kind of meshes into the Rockefeller plan about 
controlling and regulatory capture of human medicine as a whole, from the pharmaceutical to the practice to the standard of care that they set out to do at the beginning of the 20th century. And it seems they've been quite successful. Um, and also including that eugenics categorization of people who it's just okay to get rid of. We, you know, the world would just be better without them. They took it upon themselves to decide who shouldn't be here. And unfortunately, that old trope about, you know, first they came for the Jews and then they came for the gypsies and then they came for the homosexuals. And by the time they came for me, there was no one to help. That appears to be the posture that the global population is in today, because COVID-19, if it does prove out to be um, a laboratory origin pathogen, uh, it would appear that it was not designed to discriminate or target any one necessarily um, specific demographic or population. It looks like it was targeted to everyone. Um, and we will continue to watch the science and the uh, patent and the regulatory and the defense and intelligence data emerge on that. That's where we will draw our conclusions is from the historical evidence that can be confirmed um, about that possibility. But Dr. Kissinger's paper, I'm going to just toggle over to that briefly here. For those of you watching the video version, you're seeing this paper. I'm describing now one little quick aspect of his National Security Study Memorandum 200, which he published in December of 1974. I'm using the search function, and I'm going to look up the word fertility. And let's see what the first instance of the word fertility is in Dr. Kissinger's plan about how to take care of us all. Oh, we stopped right here on page two in the table of contents. Part two, quote, a U.S. global population strategy. Section two, action to create conditions for fertility decline, population and a development assistance strategy. Part A, general strategy and resource for aid assistance, A.I.D. Part B, function assistance programs to create conditions for fertility decline. Part C, listen up, folks, food for peace program and population. Now, this is not a presentation on glyphosate and GMOs. But I'll tell you, if you continue into this rabbit hole and look at my main research Zotero, which is included in this deck, it's easy to find. I have one place online where there's a sort of a living library, lots of different topics. But I've got multiple folders with several thousand items in them about GMOs and glyphosate. And their effect not only on causing cancer, but on causing autoimmune problems in the body, a number of different conditions, and specifically on autoimmunity that inhibits human reproduction. In a word, that's called reprotoxicity. Um, so that's where I would encourage you to look. If you want to see, is there a scientific basis and potential relationship between Kissinger's policies here and what we've all been eating and doing to our bodies since the early 90s, uh, I'd suggest that you go and look at that material. Let's get back to the slideshow. We're almost at the end. Along these lines, we, we hear and see the emergence of some of those doctors that began their work uh, in hepatitis research with primates back in the 1950s. One of them is Dr. Alfred Prince. And Dr. Prince worked uh, on a project that was funded and administered by the New York Blood Center. And it involved managing a little island and they trapped a number of chimpanzees and brought them in for hepatitis vaccine studies and experiments. <laughs> We've already talked about the number of ways that these animals were used and the dangers of that. Dr. Prince was one of the named parties in a new patent in 1975 for the new cutting edge method of producing a hepatitis B vaccine. And that was to actually inject the animal and allow the animal to be the viral mixer and then kill the animal and collect the hepatitis virus for a human product. There were voices of dissent. There were cries from the wilderness of people who knew 
firsthand as laboratory bench investigators, uh, other virologists, microbiologists, people of that level, uh, that there was serious, serious danger in the direction that all of this work was heading. They had a couple of uh, contentious conferences and the way that the papers are written, it, it, it brings to me the picture of a tennis match. And on one side are all of the fans and the tennis players rooting for their defense department contracts and all of the new and interesting viruses that cause leukemia and cancer, sarcoma, that they're cooking up in the labs through the course of this work. The other side of the court are all of the scientists who are screaming, standing on a chair, ringing the bell, trying to warn against what this could mean for public health. Um, there's a whole, again, another whole, I would say, master's study about those two meetings and the topic of bioethics and how it was bypassed in the 1970s and where it's led us today. But people did make an effort to fight against this. Dr. Maurice Hilleman, the one that basically said that SV40 doesn't cause cancer, despite all the times that it does, uh, was in charge of the hepatitis B vaccine unit at Merck and was tied closely to this work all the way up to the experimental batches that were produced for the gay male volunteers in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. There were congressional investigations of this illegal biowarfare work. If you want to, you can visit some of those congressional records. I have them included and linked in the timeline. Uh, and they'll bring you to large PDFs that you can search. And you can see um, the attempt of the U.S. Army to come out of the closet about its illegal activities. They offer some examples. I think they're red herrings quite frankly, because they certainly don't emphasize the work that we've been talking about here. They talk about things like shellfish toxins and that they had a small amount of shellfish toxins and that they had a dart gun, a special gun that could be used to um, surreptitiously uh, dart someone and infect them with a disease. And, you know, that was that was really uh, a, a, a pale confession compared to the dangers of the work that they were doing. And this this artifact that we're looking at here, it's it's a large uh, volume one of U.S. Army activity in the biological warfare programs. Volume one dated February 1977. There are other congressional records from the 70s about trying to bring this stuff to light. And it seems that every time accountability tried to come to bear on the defense intelligence uh, pharma congressional apparatus, because that's it, uh, it lived in all of those spaces, uh, the more that the defense and intelligence communities would just pretend that they weren't doing what they were actually doing. And they would confess less and less to the point where now the defense and intelligence groups, including all of their siblings, all of their children, you know, DIRTA, DARPA, things like that, um, just have the ability, even when they're FOIA'd, to redact everything. You can force them to confess things. You can't force them to tell you what it was. So that's, you know, it's essentially neutered the FOIA process in this space. And I don't encourage people to run up against that wall of fire because you'll put a whole lot of effort into it and you'll get a whole lot of nothing. Um, I would really encourage you to look at the scientific history and uh, maybe things outside of the United States, footprints from experiments that were run in parallel to these activities. So as we've been describing, to recap, an era of very reckless medical, human, animal science began in the 1950s. The emergence of several new primate diseases presented in human public health at that same time. This spawned and fed into an ongoing hunger for biological weapons research. That turned into a program that had a storefront its brand was that it's a war on cancer. But back on, you know, in the loading dock and in the back rooms was all of this biowarfare development work, trying to create new pathogens. The simplest way that they had were to bring them over the fence from animals into people. 
in the course of this work, they, they developed a specific focus on the primate pathogens and eventually pathogens that were causing cancers, leukemias, and sarcomas like SIV and HIV. So that's the long and the short of it. We see in the 19, late 1970s that 1,083 volunteers in New York City rolled up their sleeves and began volunteering for three shots of Heptavax B. I've found eyewitnesses that lived in those neighborhoods in the three U.S. cities where this began. And they attest to the fact that people that were in that study were quite vocal about it. Uh, people that were recruited were supposed to be very, very sexually active. They wanted people who were attractive, who would have a lot of sexual partners. The premise for that up front was that they would be at a high risk for acquiring hepatitis B. And the backside, the dual purpose was that in the course of their sexual activities and exchanges, they would spread this new biological weapon. The same thing occurred in those African vaccine campaigns. The timelines verify it. The genetics of the Los Alamos DNA HIV bank verify it. The work of Dr. Gerald Myers, where he describes that human HIV seems to have begun with the exact same clade. That Think of that as a very specific sub-branch of a family of anything, animals or pathogens, but that it began with the very same clade in those central clusters of men who reported pneumonia and cancer and then died very quickly and moved out from them to the people that they'd had a sexual connection with that also got HIV AIDS. That work is buried. You don't see that in the, the CDC's HIV timeline. They scrub all of that from the history. But you can go and find it for yourself if you want. And then history begins in 1981, where most of the world seems to think that HIV just came out of nowhere. You know, that we began seeing the emergence of, of HIV in, in these two populations. There's a direct correlation with the genetics, with the vaccination event, with the disease that they all presented, and most importantly, the more than 20 years of biowarfare research that preceded those vaccine events uh, that built HIV from SIV. That ends the formal presentation. I know that was kind of the long form. Um, I'm happy to entertain questions about any part of this, whether it's HIV, the primate work. Uh, and we do also owe a circle back to talk about a Louisiana researcher who wrote about uh, one of these little compartments, one of these little honeycomb cells of scientific research and put it in his book called Dr. Mary's Monkey. That's Ed Hoslam. Hey, thanks so much for checking out this episode. We are going to move to questions and answers. And I wanted to keep our podcast within the hour mark, like we promised. So please check out part two for questions and answers with Nick. Before you go, hit follow and share with a friend. Wake up to a new episode of Louisiana Sister Squad podcast every Tuesday.